From ADP, this is Better For It. I'm Francesca Ramsey. You may know me from my videos about race and pop culture on YouTube, or maybe you're a fan of my fabulous haircut. I've written for MTV and Comedy Central, and I even wrote a book about my mistakes on my journey to become an activist. On this show, I talk with business leaders about their biggest mistakes and how they've learned from them. In fact, those lessons fuel what they're working for today. In this episode, my guest is Brian Scudamore. Brian is the founder and CEO of O2E Brands, a multi-million dollar home service empire. But he started small at age 19 with just one truck and a vision for hauling junk. He grew that into a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK, the first of O2E's three brands. When we talked, I was taken by how honest Brian is about the times he messed up along the way to building that empire. So I was failing on recruiting. I was failing on who I selected to be a part of the team and didn't have enough process behind it. And then the training systems, I didn't have any. He thinks of failure as a gift and a resource to learn from. For him, reinvention constantly follows failure. His story starts way back just before he went to college. You now are sitting on a home service empire that earns about $320 million in revenue. So how did you get to this empire? What was the very first thing that set you on this path? Well, I, I was in a McDonald's drive through of all places, not necessarily a place where someone goes for their business inspiration. And I was like, ah, oh, what am I going to do for work? And I saw this truck in front of me with plywood sides built up on the box. It said Mark's hauling on the side, and it was filled with junk. And it just about hit me, and I went, wow, that's my idea. And so I went out. I took $700 I had in the bank, bought my own pickup truck, took some flyers, business cards, and a week later, I had a business. And off I went, driving down alleys, laneways, when someone had a pile of junk. I would offer to cart it away for a fee, and that became the basic business model for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And so the empire started. Oh, and you had cited that our company was about $320 million in revenue. We'll actually finish this year at about $458 million in revenue across all three brands. So it's uh, okay. w- wherever you got your numbers, it's, it's fun <laughs> to see the growth is, uh, is happening. Just a little, a little bit of a light flex. I'm here for it. Um, I'm sorry that I got the numbers wrong. No, it's okay. It's okay. I am very impressed that you were able to uh, correct me on that. So, in 2019, Brian's company made $458 million. But it took a lot to get there. When he was starting out, Brian was juggling a lot. He was busy running 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and at the same time, he was studying business in college. And then I started to realize that I was learning much more about business, running one versus studying from textbooks. So I made a bold decision three years into my university degree, and I said to my father, who's a liver transplant surgeon who's done more school than anyone I think I've ever met, and I said to my dad, guess what? I got some news for you, and I had him sit down, and I said, I'm leaving college. What was your dad's response to that? He thought it was the worst idea he'd ever heard, thought it was absolutely crazy that his oldest son is quitting college to become a full-time junk man, 
And I kind of get it looking back. He didn't see what I saw. And what I saw was a future building something special, building exceptional service in a very fragmented industry. So we went from one truck that year after dropping out to three trucks. I literally went and bought two trucks at a time with a vision for growth. Four trucks, five trucks the following year, and off we went. So just one year after dropping out, Brian had built a team and a business that was making half a million dollars in revenue, and he was just 24 years old. But there was something he'd overlooked, the culture of the business. He realized his company wasn't just about hauling junk, but also connecting with people. And his team just wasn't delivering great customer service. I wasn't happy with the business. I stopped having fun. I had 11 people. But back in that day, we had a private office. And I would go hide in that private office just to separate myself from these people. These were people who weren't ambitious, weren't professional. They weren't people that saw the world as glass being half full. I didn't enjoy playing the game of business with them. And I found myself going, I I don't need to be surrounded by that. And I didn't really know what to do other than fire the entire team and made that bold decision to rip off the Band-Aid. And I thought, you know, starting again is going to be painful, but it'll be the best option that I've got. So when you came to that realization, was there anybody that you consulted or was this something that you were really resolute in coming to this decision on your own? Well, they say it's lonely at the top. And sometimes when you make these big decisions, especially when you're a 24-year-old kid trying to build it for the first time and you can't really turn to your father anymore because he thinks you're crazy for dropping out of university, I didn't have a lot of people to talk to. And I just actually trusted my gut and went with what felt right and almost by accident, see what would happen. Take me back to that moment when you're in front of your 11 employees and telling them what you've decided to do. I asked everybody to take a seat, and I started with two simple words. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that as your leader, I've let you down, that I haven't given you the love and support that you needed to be successful. I realized I might not have hired the right people or trained them and given them what they needed in terms of tools and encouragement to make this job a home run and realized there was sort of a clash of cultures and what I was looking for versus the people I had to deliver it. So you talked about thinking that hiring these people was a mistake. What did the hiring process at that time look like? We would run ads, classified ads in the newspapers. People would call, and most people didn't have a resume, not for someone who was going to haul junk and throw it into a truck. And they'd come in, and we'd have a quick meet and greet. And if they seemed to be able to be strong enough to load a truck and have a decent enough attitude in the interview, we would hire them. So one of the things that you mentioned was not necessarily preparing them adequately for the job. Was there something specific that you felt that you were missing and Did you use that to inform how you moved forward? In 1995, so after letting all these people go, I ended up reading a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And he's got a philosophy, which I've adopted as my own, of people don't fail, systems do. And you have to have the right recruiting systems, and you have to have the right training systems. So I was failing on recruiting. I was failing on who I selected to be a part of the team and didn't have enough process behind it. And then the training systems, I didn't have any. So I started creating checklists, manuals, and training programs. 
and I really started walking people through the way I did things. We would have a current best practice that would fit on one sheet, whether it was how you priced the job to how you greeted the customer at the front door with a big smile and a friendly handshake. Every single thing we did that was important in the process would have a one-page best practice. Brian describes this reckoning with his management strategies as his first really big business lesson. I learned that you have to find the right people and treat them right, which had me then go introspective and say, who are the right people? I hired people, and I still do today, people that I can see being friends with. We call it the beer and barbecue test. Each and every person we ask ourselves after we interview, could you see having a beer or a coffee, whatever it might be, with that person? If the answer is yes, great. You ask yourself the second question, do they pass the barbecue test? We look for diversity, lots of different personalities. We've got introverts and extroverts from all over the world. And what we look for is, do they fit the community? But I would argue that some people who are introverted are not going to pass the barbecue test, but are still going to be really great employees. I would disagree because I think that, you know, plenty of introverts do pass the test. It's not about being social. It's about fitting in. So it sounds more like you want people who want to be part of the team versus someone that wants to be a lone wolf. Yeah, absolutely. We want people to say, hey, this is my tribe. I want to be here. This is my place. I want to contribute and I want to grow and build something bigger and better with this team versus doing it alone. I think we hire on attitude, train on skill, and it might be a very simple approach, but um, it works for us. And it hasn't really let us down. When we fundamentally changed the way we started to, to recruit and hire and got really selective and picky, that's when the business really started to grow and thrive. And it really took off when Brian shifted to a new business model. This is what started 1-800-GOT-JUNK on the path to becoming a household name. We're talking over 250 locations across North America and Australia. Can you pinpoint the moment that you decided to franchise your business? I remember we were covered on a local news station. We were on TV on the evening news, and at the very end of the clip, as the truck's driving off into the sunset, they had asked, so what's next, Brian? And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe we'll franchise the company one day. And so I think that's the first public account of my commitment to franchising. But I had always loved the Ray Kroc model. Ray Kroc was the, the founder of the franchise model with McDonald's and really scaled that brand globally. And I'd always loved, not, not necessarily the burgers and fries, but uh, <laughs> watching that model scale. In 2008, the business made $106 million dollars only about a decade after Brian had bought his first truck. In other words, it was going well. Going so well, Brian and his franchise partners wanted to scale bigger to make hundreds of millions. Franchise owners didn't think I had what it took to get it to the next level. I knew they were right, and I agreed. I needed someone to take the business to that next stage of growth, someone who had rigor and discipline and process and so I found this person, and on paper, they were a perfect fit. They'd been with Starbucks for 15 years. They'd really grown up the ranks, a team of 30,000 people beneath them. And I thought, man, here's someone who has been a president of one of the brands that I love most in the world. 
And I thought, imagine what they'll do to my tiny little company. This is going to be incredible. And so I, I fell in love with the pedigree. I overlooked the actual conversation and, and the time to do the due diligence to really get to know each other. So you're telling me you didn't apply your hiring system. Why? Well, I think I felt like I'd hit the, the jackpot and won the lottery. And I just thought, this is a no-brainer. And luckily, this person wanted to relocate to Canada, where Brian was headquartered. He was thrilled to have this new president and COO. But within 14 months, it became clear things were not working out. I believed that we needed to spend more money on our residential side of the business, which was our bread and butter. But all our investment kept going towards the commercial side of the business, which was a quote-unquote big bet of where we thought we could really pick up some revenue. We didn't both agree on direction. And so I was saying one thing, this person was doing another, and that just isn't a sustainable strategy. And I just knew in my gut it wasn't right. After the break, Brian owns up to his hiring mistake, but then he has to fix it. Better For It is a podcast from ADP. ADP believes that the things we work for are what define us. And they're imagining a world where nothing gets in the way of doing great work, not even our biggest mistakes. Much more than payroll, ADP also provides best-in-class HR, talent, time, and benefits, all designed to clear the way for you and your people to achieve what you're working for. Back to my conversation with Brian Scudamore, CEO of O2E Brands. When we left off, Brian's partnership with his new president and COO was just not working, and Brian was getting worried. So what did you do? I ended up sitting down, and I remember having a very difficult conversation and pointing out to this person that they were no longer the right person for the job and had to terminate their contract. I had to learn that lesson. I failed again. It was my, I'm sorry, I made the mistake. What was the impact on the culture of the business letting people at the top go like this? I think there was some anxiety and fear. There was the, the concern, can we actually get this back? Can we actually get out of our revenue hole and start to rebuild the company again? Well, I went down to meet with franchise owners. We had what we call regional meetings and I remember doing this tour across the country and meeting with franchise owners, and they couldn't understand the decision. And so I remember sitting down with people, and I'd leave the room, and I'd say, I'm about to leave the room. I'm going to put up flip charts all over the walls and some markers. I want you to write down every question you have. Don't put your name beside it. I'll come back in, and I'll go through and cross out every question as I've answered it. I can imagine that it must have been a little nerve-wracking to step out of the room and let people write down those questions. Were there any comments or questions that stuck out to you when you walked back in the room? The ones that stood out for me were things like, Brian, you're not the right leader to build this business. We know that. You know, what is your plan? I kept going back to myself and going, but I'm the guy that built this business. 
You know, I got it to a certain point. Why do they think I can't do it again? So I got introspective to understand why did I fail with the Starbucks leader? What was different? What was missing? And one of the things I did was I I realized I just didn't hire the right leader for me. What did you do to make sure that you didn't repeat the same mistake? The learning for me was get really clear this time on exactly who I'm looking for. So I took out a sheet of paper and I drew a line down the middle. And on one side, I wrote all the things I love to do in the business and all the things that I'm good at within the business. On the right side of the sheet, I wrote all of the things I'm bad at and all of the things I don't like to do in the business. And then I wrote a little description of the person I was looking for. And the person I was looking for had to love all the things on that right-hand side of the sheet. They had to love financials. They had to love hiring and building teams and developing them. So I wrote a little description, almost a vivid uh, sort of picture, a, a vision of what I was looking for. I sent this out through LinkedIn and email and so on. Three people, unrelated, came back to me from different parts of the globe and said, the person you have described, you're so clear on, there's only one person that describes, and that's Eric Church. So Brian boarded a plane to Toronto. That's where Eric was leading a large travel tourism company that was making over a couple hundred million dollars a year. They met, and Brian could tell. Eric was his missing piece. And this time I knew that I was going to hold onto the reins a little bit tighter until I was ready. We spent weeks getting to know each other. In fact, started even doing a little bit of work together before we both inked the deal. And it was a year before I completely let go after hiring Eric to say, you know what, you got this. And he, it's this two-in-the-box model, we call it, where I'm the visionary, the cultural cheerleader. He is the executor, the rigor, the discipline. And the two of us are needed in that one box at the top where we're better guiding the company together, each working in our area of unique ability, than we are working on our own. And what about your hiring system? Are you still using that same signature beer and barbecue method? The beer and barbecue test is alive and well. You'll hear people in our office constantly saying in a very serious way, so what do you think? Do they pass the beer test? Do they pass the barbecue test? It gets used constantly. And it, it is, you know, it's, it's a bit of an art and a science uh, brought together, but it works for us. Brian and Eric saw how franchising had helped 1-800-GOT-JUNK become so successful. And they wanted to do the same with other parts of home service. So Brian expanded his franchise model to painting and gutter cleaning, all in just five years. His new companies, Wow One Day Painting and Shackshine, helped him round out what is now a home service empire under his banner company, O2E Brands. So given what you know now... If you could go back in time before hiring the wrong people mm -hmm. and give yourself a piece of advice, what would you say? I'd probably say, hey, Brian, you're going to mess up so bad so many times. Be okay with that. Be okay with those mistakes and just sort of look that mistake in the mouth and say, what can I learn from that? How's it going to make me better? For most people, it's really hard to see your own bad decisions in real time or even upon reflection, 
What is your advice for fledgling entrepreneurs on how to not fear owning those bad decisions or even acknowledging that change is necessary? I think you've got to have the courage to backtrack and say, hmm, what would I do differently this time around? And to me, that's a big part of who I am is always looking at failure and saying, here's the gift I got from that failure. I mean, firing a COO of ex-COO of Starbucks and having to do financial settlements and having to have your franchise partners near hate you and lose belief in you, those things are all big, tough decisions. But what great learning better than any university education could have ever provided me. What do you think are some of the most important rules for building a team? I think, you know, I've realized that B players will hire Cs. As will hire other A's. If you've got the right A players on your team, they want people that will elevate their game, people they can learn from that will help make them better. And so it's really getting that first core group of people right and then empowering them to hire smarter people. I mean, you wouldn't have to go very far to find many people in my company that would say that Eric is smarter than me. Where do you think your entrepreneurial spirit came from? Well, I was always inspired by my grandparents who had a business called Lorber Surplus in downtown San Francisco. I watched how they treated customers, how they treated employees. My grandparents always gave them the love and support that they needed. And that always sort of impressed upon me. And I think where you often get kids wanting to grow up and being a superhero or fighting fires, taking care of the bad guys, whatever it might be, I was one who really saw myself being an entrepreneur. I love the idea of seeing you as a little kid wearing a a suit and that being your version of a superhero. (laughs) Exactly. You know what? When my grandmother passed away, we found a binder of a bunch of my drawings that I did as a kid. And there was one that said four and a half years old, Brian. And it was a picture of me sweeping up trash, a truck in the background, and there I was wearing overalls. And as destiny would have it, my first uniform, there I was, overalls, a hat, hauling away junk. Brian's no longer that guy who hid from his employees in his back office. Actually, he's proud to say that today, there are no private offices in his business, and the whole company, about 500 employees, has a high-energy stand-up meeting every day where they focus on good news. He says that what he's working for these days is keeping the company culture on track. And it seems to be working. He says there is such a buzz and an energy at the office, it sometimes feels like a Wall Street trading floor. Next time, I chat with Joe Spearman, the CEO and founder of tech startup Localer. And he did not have an easy time when it came to funding his business. I had an eviction notice. My car was about to get repossessed. I had went through all my savings. I was personally probably $200,000 into the business. That's next time on Better For It. Better For It is a podcast from ADP. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with your friends. You can tweet me at Cheska Lee. There's a link in the show notes. 
Better For It is produced by Max Gibson and Mathilde Orfolino. Andrea Bruce is our editor. Mixed and scored by Molly Bolton. Our theme is composed by Marcus Thorne Bagala. Additional music from Marmoset and Billy Libby. Fact-checking by Gabby Bulgarelli. I'm Francesca Ramsey. Thanks for listening. Listening.